0: Okay. Well, good morning. My name is Wayne. As you saw on the bulletin, um, I'm gonna have a conversation with Pastor Roy about this. I'm like, I don't think my wife has a picture this big of me. Um I, I it just <laughs> I mean it's helpful when you're like, who's that guy? You've got a bulletin to see who that is and say, Oh, okay, that's that's the guy speaking. I yeah. So just so you know a little bit about me. Um, my name is Wayne. I am the youth director, as it says on there, which basically means that uh, I get to go around to different churches and help support youth ministries. Um, we put on events that are designed to help support youth ministries. Um, but but that's a little bit about my job. Let me introduce you to a little bit about me. Um, I have a picture. I have a couple pictures of my family. This is my family here. They couldn't be here today. My wife is in an incredibly weird season where she just got a junior high pastoring job. And so she's a junior high pastor now at Glad Tidings in Burlington, and so she couldn't be here. But that's, uh, if you look on your, I'm going to get turned around here. If you look on your left, my right, you'll see that's the three of us. It's my daughter, Melody. She is 10 years old. She'll be turning 11 in June. She loves... Uh, emojis, slime, she loves cats, and reading. Those are her, her biggest favorite things. And a number of years ago, I was speaking at a youth rally in Woodstock, and I was like, talking about how much I love my family, and I was going on about how great my daughter was, and I think she was about six or seven at the time, and I was like, man, I love Melody. She's the best ever, you know, she's so great, and she's you know, the most, and I've had this phrase of she's the most outstanding whatever her age is on the planet, so she's the most outstanding six-year-old on the planet, most outstanding seven-year-old, eight, 10, you get the picture. So I was speaking at this youth rally, and then I, I moved from introducing my daughter to introducing my wife. And that's my wife there. Um, she doesn't love the picture on the left, but, um, oh well, it's kind of, her hair's doing something weird and she doesn't love it. But as I was introducing her, my wife, her name is Bev, she's a music, well, she's an elementary school teacher by trade. She uh, has served in London the last 15 years as a music teacher, um, and then we just recently moved, and so she's not teaching, and she's interim junior high pastoring at our church. And... Uh, That's her over in the other one. She likes the middle picture much more. I was introducing, and I had said how old my daughter was, and then, yeah, you're already laughing because you're like, you don't say how old your wife is, and so I I started the sentence, and that's my, you know, amazing, and I was right to the point of her age, and I was like, I can't say it. I'm, I'm smart enough to know that you don't say your wife's age. And so then I was like, well, if I say something that's like flattering, like a flattering age instead of her real age, I'll get, I'll get bonus point. Instead of like, I can turn this moment around for good. And instead of saying her real age, say a flattering age. The problem was sometimes I think really good on my feet and sometimes I don't. And in that moment I was like, what's a flattering age? What's a flattering age? What's a flattering age? And I was 18, that is what I said. <laughs> I had just talked about my six-year-old daughter and then introduced my wife and said she was 18. <laughs> that was not a good experience for me. They all had this look of like, what? And I was like, oh, no. And you know when you're like trying to uh, like keep a conversation going and you're like, I'm not actually trying to completely lose all credibility right now. I need you to know, I need you to know my wife is not 12 when we had our daughter, um, that that is not not us at all, um, and so she. Uh, but yeah, that's our family. And then on the very very your right, uh, the top is Bella, and the bottom is Caramel. These are our cats. Uh, my daughter loves cats. My wife loves cats, and I love cats. And you're all like, what? I love cats. It's okay. They're normal. They're awesome. I typically have scratches on my hands because I love my cats. Um, And so a little bit about me, that's kind of my my family. We currently live in Stony Creek, Ontario. Um, But before I took this job, I was a youth pastor in London, Ontario. And while I was there, that's where I met your pastor, Pastor Roy. I I met Pastor Justin as well at a different time, but Pastor Roy is the one who invited me, so I'm going to talk about him a little bit. Um, Pastor Roy and I, uh, we go back a few years And he and I did this crazy thing where we went to serve some churches up north. And so they did this, like, training day for youth leaders in northern Ontario. And so I got to spend, like, like I think it was about 15 hours driving with Pastor Roy on multiple occasions. Just, like, really long van drives where we got to talk about absolutely everything. And I have to tell you, I absolutely love Pastor Roy. Um, he and I have, have, we're not like close, like we're spending Christmas together, but we're close in that there are very few people in ministry that I, that I trust like I do Pastor Roy as he was, um, as he was meeting with board and going through the entire process to come here. You know, I was praying with him and I was in, the, in a season of transition as well. And we kind of got to walk that separately, but together. Like the day that he came and spoke and preached the call, I was praying for him because it was the day I was telling my boss that I was, le- like it was like right around the same time. And we got to walk that journey together a little bit. And I'm so, so proud. As a matter of fact, I've actually been here before. None of you were here. But I came and I visited Pastor Roy once here in this church. And I was like, right after he got here, might have been about a month after he got here, and I was like, hey, I was driving because part of my new role, I drive all over the province. And I was like, I'm going to stop in in Arthur. And so I came and, you know, he gave me a tour and I saw the facilities, I saw everything. and, And it was so great to just be able to, to visit him and to see, and then when he invited me to come, I was so excited because I was like, "I'm going to spend the morning with Pastor Roy. This is great. We'll come and we'll hang out, and this will be great." And then he's not here, and so uh, you can shame him for me. That'd be great. Just be like, Pastor Roy, you don't invite people and not. He did tell me he was going to be away, but um, but what a what a joy to see where he is and to see you know. What's happening here at, at APA in your church. And I, and I love, love, love so many things that he shared with me about what's going on here and some of the things he's trying to do. Even the technology that's happening in the back. I was like, this is so cool. This moving forward It's such a great, a great thing. Um, and I'm so excited. When he invited me to come, I was really excited, like I said. And I, and I accepted the invitation, but I have to tell you a little bit of my personality. After I accepted the invitation, I started to think, okay, what does that mean? So I'm going to come and I'm going to speak, but, but I, I don't like personally, pre, personal preference. No, this is not against you. I don't love speaking to people I don't know because I'm always kind of thinking, well, what, what if they don't like me? Or what if, what if I show up? This, these, these were real things that happened to me. I was like, what if, what if I'm late? Like the clocks went ahead last night. Did they throw anybody? Did anybody get thrown by that and have to rush? Okay, we had at least one. I, it's, it's sorry to single you out like that, but um, I was so paranoid last night at like I, I won't tell you what time, but I was so paranoid that I was going to be late and I was going to sleep through my alarm. And and most of us use our phone as our alarm clock, and so it kind of automatically switches. And so you're like, will it switch? Yeah. I think it will. And so I used a normal alarm clock because I was that afraid because I was like, I don't want to be late. As a matter of fact, service started at 1030. I left my house. It's an hour and a half drive to get here. I left my house at eight o'clock because I was like, if I leave at eight, I will get into Arthur somewhere around 930. And, and Pastor Roy asked me to come for 10. So I was like, if I, I was like, what if I'm late? I'm not going to be late. That can't happen. But then I'm like, what if my, what if I drive the wrong way or I, or I get lost? And I, like, thankfully, I mean, I have a GPS system. Like, I, I use my phone to kind of guide me around. But I don't, I don't know how people did things years ago without a phone to direct you on where to go. Um, I think we actually just learned where places were. I've I've been driving all over this province, and I still don't know where anything is. I just put the address in and follow. <laughs> that's that's life. Um, or worse, like, what if it takes longer than I thought? I was late. What if there's a problem? What if I was supposed to wear a tie? I know, you're like, oh, oh, we're a nice, friendly, welcoming church. You don't need a tie. I didn't know, and I thought about asking, but I forgot. And so I was like, ooh. And I actually considered changing my outfit to be something that could go with a tie and could not go with a tie, depending on if I showed up and everybody was in ties Then I could run to my car and put a tie on. But I looked on your website, and Pastor, there's a picture of Pastor Roy there, and he's not wearing a tie. So I was like, okay, I'm good. I think I'm good. This is a really, really deep personal fear for me. Like, what if they don't find me funny? Like, what if, what if I get here and I'm, like, telling all these jokes and they're just looking at me blankly, like, what? Not, I, I, I mean, like Or what if I preach too long? You're all thinking that right now. <laughs> You're all like, what if he keeps going? He's five minutes in. He's only told a story. Like, come on. What's going on? What if I preach too short? What if, what if I'm the best pastor you ever met because I preach really short? Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. What if, what if, what if? The, the whole concept, the whole idea of this phrase, what if, is what I want to look at today. Um, what if is something that, that drives my life in so many ways, and I think that it drives all of our lives. I think we often reflect on this concept of what if, and if I could give you a couple that might relate to your lives, those were the ones that I dealt with, like last night and this past week, this is some that you deal with on a regular basis. Uh, for, the, for those who go to school, what if I raise the hand, my hand and give the wrong answer? I was so afraid. At my old church, my, my lead pastor used to always say, he, he would like say a sentence and expect you to finish it. I don't know if Pastor Roy does this, but he'd be like, um, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Right. And you know the word Son. But my lead pastor would, would not do something that common. He would do different things. And then I was always afraid of saying the wrong word. And I'd be like, what if I say the wrong? And so I would not answer. I would just calmly lean to my wife and say, son. And she'd be like, why don't you say something? And i say, because I might be wrong. What if? Um, <laughs> none of you have this problem. And, 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 and I want to tell you that this is gone. But like, what if the mortgage payment comes out before the check is deposited? You know, you're like, that's a real, like, life. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something different. Um, what if your favorite sports team loses to that other person's favorite sports team and you have to hear about it for a week? Yeah, that's a real one. Especially, listen, I'm an Ottawa Senators fan. Like, we lose to everybody. And so I, I just get it constantly. Um, what, if, what if my parents find out about that secret? Um, what if he or she realizes that I lied to them? You know, most of our lives are filled with wondering what if. And so what I want you to do for just a moment, I want you to turn to somebody beside you and I want you to answer this question. Just, I'm going to give you like a minute to talk and it's going to be this question. It's going to come up on the screen right here. Jonathan's doing a great job. It's what if, what if you had tomorrow off? No school, no work, no chores, no bills. What would you do? Who would you see and when would you wake up? Just take 60 seconds, talk to your neighbor about what you would do tomorrow if you didn't have to go to work, if you didn't have to go to school. What would you do? What time would you wake up? If you're anything like me, the answer is I wouldn't wake up. Yeah. I, I would wake up on Tuesday. <laughs> That would be a wonderful option. Um, interesting thing, as I kind of already mentioned, my personality, I, it's not a fear. It's not that I'm necessarily nervous. So I, I always give this disclaimer because sometimes when I talk about this kind of part of my personality, people will be like, oh, it's okay. You did a good job. You know, and they, they want to reassure me. But I have this ability, and it's, and it's something I can't turn off, where I'm always thinking worst case scenario. I'm always thinking about what if something goes wrong. Um, And I was recently challenged by a mentor. I want to introduce you to two words. Um, And they're they're very simple. The words are paranoia and pronoia. So these are words I was challenged by a mentor to to think about life this way. And so the two words, the first one is paranoia. We've all heard the word paranoia before. Paranoia in a normal context is being worried that, you know, maybe somebody's out to get you or something bad is going to happen. It's like this always worrying about the negative. It's the what if with a negative connotation, with a negative side to it. you're like, what if, and then all the negative things, right? So a couple more examples because I don't feel like I had enough. What if I try and fail? What if I don't have what it takes? What if this isn't true? Paranoia is, is thinking about what if the worst thing happens. On the contrary, and this is what my mentor was encouraging me to think through, is called pro-noia. It's the belief that good things will happen. What if I get accepted into university? What if we win this game? What if I can really trust this person? It's like coming at life from a positive perspective and and thinking about the best thing that could possibly happen instead of the negative. And the thing about this is we fall into these two camps and most of us have a, a tendency towards one or the other. And we've met people who are positive. We've met people who are negative. And when it comes to the what if that guides our lives, we tend to think of it in one of these two camps, either... What if negatively or what if positively? And so today what I want to look at is I want to look at a Bible story found in the book of Mark, chapter 6. Um, and so we're going to put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you want, you can turn there while I tell you a few things about the book of Mark. Now, most of us probably know that the book of Mark was written by a real biblical character. He is in the Bible. He's not one of the disciples. However, it's written by a guy named John Mark who appears in the book of Acts, um, he was not one of the 12 disciples, but he is believed to have met Jesus around Passion Week. And that Passion Week is the week leading up to Jesus' death. So Mark meets, uh, meets Jesus about a week before. And another interesting fact that you can save and tell Pastor Roy sometime because it'll impress him. So this is like, write this one down. Um, it is, many scholars believe that Mark's house is the house where they held the Last Supper. So they believe that he was the one who owned that house. So when they, you know, find the the room where they meet together and they have the Last Supper, many believe that's Mark's house. A couple of interesting things about Mark's gospel. He seems to focus more on action and more on the miracles that Jesus did, more so than the teaching, which is great. This is a very action-packed book. If you you read the book of Mark, it's like Jesus did this, and then he went here, and then he did this, and then he went here, and then he did this, which is really awesome um, if you're into action and kind of that kind of a thing. Um, And then the last thing is it's written to a non-Jewish audience, which is great because I'm not Jewish. Um, But it's great because it doesn't presume upon an understanding of the old covenant when he writes it. He actually writes it from a perspective of, you could be anybody just kind of walking, and he's like, there was this guy named Jesus. If you compare that with Matthew, the book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Um, and so Matthew, they're talking to people who understand the law and understand the rules, and that's why he keeps referencing, you know, what the prophet said and those kinds of things, because he's referencing what people would know. Whereas in Mark, Mark's like, okay, you might not know the Old Testament, but you need to know about Jesus. And so he goes right into that. Now, we're going to start at verse 36 of chapter 6 of the book of Mark. It is on the screen. Some of you are reading ahead. That's okay. I like keen energy. That's good. Okay. Here's what it says. This is one of the most famous miracles that Jesus did. In Mark 6, 36, it says, send the crowds away so that they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. This is the disciples talking, um, and they're they're like, send them away. But Jesus said to them in verse 37, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Verse 38, how much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Whenever I read scripture, I'm always like, so was there brown grass? And he was like, don't sit there. He's like, have them sit on the green grass. That's not probably what happened, but I just, those, those things stick out to me. That's kind of how my brain works. Um, so verse 40 says, So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. Verse 44, a total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. Most of us are familiar with this story. This is a very common Bible story. If you've been in the church any amount of time, you've done the Sunday school lesson on Jesus feeding the 5,000. I can remember as a kid doing the Sunday school, like we had little like Play-Doh and you had to make the bread and make fishes with Play-Doh. Like we're learning the story this way, right? Five loaves, two fish. We're all familiar with this. The interesting thing about this story is it's really easy to look at this and think that it's about food. And to think that this story has anything to do with food. And it doesn't. I mean, it's great. Jesus fed them. That is awesome. But it's n- the, the point of this story, the point of what happened here, has nothing to do with food. So instead, I'm going to point out a couple of different things that I think this story tells us. That I think can shape and can influence us towards our what-if conversation that's happening in our mind. So, uh couple of awesome things. First up, number one, I believe that God wants to work through you. So the interesting thing I see in this story is the disciples wanted to send the people away. So Jesus is teaching. It's a big, long day. It'd be like... The people are so enthralled with the teaching that they stay really, really long, and they get really, really hungry. It's kind of like if I keep going all day, you're like, man, he's just such a good preacher that we're just going to stay. I'm not even going to think about how hungry I am. And then all of a sudden, hunger will hit. And eventually, probably at about, you know, 2.45, you'll be like, I am so hungry. And you'll be like, why doesn't he stop talking? That's a joke. I'm not going to 2.45, okay? Okay. 145. Um, also a joke. He's, it's like the crowd is just, they're, they're so enthralled, they're starting to get hungry. And, and the disciples realize, man, this is going to be a problem. There are 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children in this crowd. If they get hungry, this is going to be an issue. So we should probably send them away. So the disciples come up to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, we need to send these people out to get food. Like, hangry is a real thing. People, people will get angry. You will, like, we probably could have moved up, you know, the torture and crucifixion if, if we didn't deal with the hunger of these people, because they're going to get angry. Um, but, but look at what Jesus says in verse 37. He says, you feed them. See, Jesus took the responsibility, and he put it on the disciples, that he put the responsibility. He says, you feed them. Now, we know, we've read this story. We saw what happened. We know the disciples didn't perform a miracle here. But Jesus performs a miracle through the disciples. And so look at it. He says, you feed them. In this story, Jesus is the one who does it, but he chooses to work through the disciples. They're the ones who take control of the situation. They're the ones who, who get everybody to sit down. They're the ones who go around and ask for food. Hey, do you have any food? They're the ones who then distribute the food, and then they're the ones who collect the food. The disciples had a very active role in this miracle. Jesus is like, I want to work with people. I want to work with you. I want to teach you. I want to I work through you. In, in older language, we would say he wants to use us for his kingdom, for his glory. He's like, I'm going to give you Jesus, holds the bread and fish up and blesses it, and then starts tearing it apart. But he starts passing it to the disciples to distribute. Now, the interesting thing about this is, I don't believe that Jesus needed the food from the crowd. Actually, there's a biblical precedent. There's a, there's a story in the Bible where Jesus feeds actually millions of people without anybody giving him an offering. Jesus, like... Jesus could have made chicken wings rain down from heaven. He could have had, I was like trying to think, like if I'm God, I would be incredibly creative in this moment. I was like, here's an opportunity to feed 5,000 people. I, You know, hey, I'm just thinking, like literally a like thunderstorm of chicken wings with a little bit of ranch dressing rain. Like put it together and then all of a sudden it's good. Or maybe like a plant grows up and like a cheeseburger is on it. Like there are possibilities here. Anybody see, you know, Cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Like, this is kind of the moment for God to do that kind of a miracle. And in, the, and in the Old Testament, he actually does. Not that miracle, but he does provide food from nothing. So he doesn't need the disciples. Jesus doesn't need the disciples. Like, he doesn't need the bread and the loaves. He doesn't need them. But what he does is he says, I'm going to choose to work through the disciples. And so it's their faith as they go around and as they follow his instructions. The thing is that the people get, feed, get fed, and Jesus does it through them. He wants to work through you just like he did with them. The second thing that I find interesting about this story is Jesus didn't need what they had, but he wanted it. God wants to use what you have. And so as I look at this story, what happens? He says, go and collect food. Now, let's just dive in culturally to what's going on in this moment. 5,000 men plus women and children, some estimates say t- over 10,000 people. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen 10,000 people, but it would be really hard for 12 people. I was trying to do the math, and I, and I was like resisting a calculator, but I'm like, if 12 people based on 5,000 men go through the crowd, that's something like each person asking roughly 400 people if you have any food, something like that. And so they're going through this crowd of up to 10,000 people, 5,000 men, right? And just as a side, the story tells us there were women and children there as well, right? It was 5,000 men is in the count. And so they go through and they don't find very much but they have to go through and ask, like, there isn't, there isn't this, like, sound system playing and be like, can all the people with food bring it over to this side and put it over here? Like, that's how you organize 10,000 people. You say, everybody do, like, loud, but they can't do that because that doesn't happen and they don't have that, they don't have access to that. There isn't some, somebody on a guitar playing, like, you know, do it again while people come up to the uh, front and, off, and and there's, like, buckets on the platform and they put their food in. It's, it's not like that. It's disciples going through literally and saying, hey, do you got any food? Hey, Jesus is asking for some food. Do you have any? And what's interesting about this is they go through a crowd of almost 10,000 people, and they come up up with five loaves and two fish. That's, as, as I've already said, that's not very much. But what's interesting is I dare to believe there was more food in the crowd. Think about it for a second. There is no Wendy's camel drive through on the way home. Like, these people would have traveled to come and hear Jesus speak, and they would have brought a lunch. Did did anybody bring a lunch to school when you were a kid? Anybody? Like, you You had to bring a homemade lunch. You didn't go to the cafeteria and buy lunch. You had to, like, bring your own, right? Anybody send their kids with lunch? My parents used to send us with peanut butter sandwiches, because back then, I am that old, that you could bring peanut butter to school. And so I had a peanut butter sandwich from birth until... High school graduation. It was every day peanut butter sandwich. Occasionally, occasionally, uh, it, it would I would get blessed and we would have a thing, and only the uh, experienced people in the room would know what this is. Mock chicken. Anybody know what mock chicken is? You're like, I don't know what that is, but I know that I ate it a lot. Um, and they're like, not even real meat. We just have mock meat. That's not good. That's not a good thing. But at the time, the, hey, that was that was an upgrade from my PB sandwiches. Um, and what's interesting about this is they all would have had snacks. They all would have brought it. But I can imagine as the disciples are working their way through the crowd and they're asking, people are thinking, yeah, but if I give it to you, I won't have any. Like if I give you what I have, then I'm not going to have food for later. Yeah, we'll share, but we're not, we're not going to find in, in 5,000 people if everybody gives you a loaf, I'm not, I'm not coming out ahead, right? If everybody, if everybody has one, there's... Well, that guy said he didn't have any, so that means mine's going to have to go and be split, and I'm going to get less than I had gotten before. That's the mentality and the mindset. You, there's, there's, it's not just, oh, we actually don't have food. I think, there's a, I think there's an element of people resisting and not wanting to give what they have. But Jesus is actually asking, saying, what do you got? Give it to me because I can do something great. And we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus takes it and he does this great miracle and they end up with more left than what they started with, but they don't know that. And what's interesting is that God wants what we have. And now if I can just back us back up to the, the paranoia, pronoia concept, too often I think God is asking for what we have and we say, yeah, but God, I only have a little bit. And we have this negative concept of what if, what if I run out? And so rather than saying, yes, God, I'll give you everything I have, I'll surrender whatever I am, Here, here's my lunch. You know, in different versions of the story, it says that it was one boy who had, uh, who had a lunch and he gave it. And, and we're too afraid of not having enough for ourselves that we're not willing to give what little bit we have. But I think if we can actually grasp the concept that God, first of all, that he wants to work with us, he wants to work through us, and then when he wants to work through us, he will work with whatever we can give him. Does he need it? No. But there's something about the act of surrender. And so my question for you, my question for me, my question for us is what if we actually surrendered everything to God? What if we actually gave him what, what we had? Whatever little things we have. You know, it's easy, um, and I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. It's easy to look at, at, at you know, if, if I was talking to a youth group, I would be like, it's easy to look at Instagram and all of the things that you see people in their lives. And for you, it's easy to look at, you know, other people's pictures of all of their great vacations and all of the great things they do and to begin to think, well, our lives aren't like theirs. It's easy to, to mess this up and not, and not think we're as good as anybody else. But God didn't actually call us to live their life. He called us to live ours, and he's blessed us. And whatever we have, he wants to use. And so I actually believe, if I can be so bold, I believe that God has a plan for the town of Arthur. I believe that God is like, I want to do an amazing thing here in Arthur. And, and, and I've actually, if I were God, I would say he's actually strategically planned. Okay, I know what I'm going to do. Because God doesn't do things by accident. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a few, a few loaves and a few fish to some people in a church called Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. And what's going to happen is as they surrender their lives and as they surrender whatever they have to me, then I'm going to use it to do a miracle. There were people in that crowd who had food in their pockets. There were people in the crowd that as they received the food that Jesus blessed and the miracle that Jesus did as they sat and they ate that bread and they ate that fish, they had food in their pockets and they missed out on the opportunity to be part of something God was doing because they held on. And so my challenge to you today, my challenge to us, my challenge to me is what would it be like if I actually surrendered everything to God? And, and allowed him to work through what I have. Because I think he would do something amazing. I think that's what the story teaches us, right? He takes something as simple as five loaves and two fish, and he feeds thousands of people with it. And so it's easy to look and say, well, we don't have what everybody else has, or we don't have what that person has, or I don't have the resources that that person has. When God's actually saying, be faithful with the little that I've given you, and I will do much with it. And I will do great things.